X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news of democracy. It's May 11th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, back in the day in 1812, the waltz was introduced into English ballrooms. Some observers considered it disgusting and immoral, like rap music, except for it was the waltz. And the Portland camp of Coxey's Army, a protest movement of unemployed workers, closed yesterday back in the day in 1894 after marching with union workers on May Day when U.S. Marshal called unsuccessfully for federal firearms to confront what he feared was an insurrection. The Oregon contingent of Coxey's Army began to leave for Washington, D.C. on eastbound freight trains. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, Kate K. with a focus on health screening for Amazon workers and an interview with Andy Saltz, candidate for House District 33. The election, just a little over a week away, folks. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The Portland gas tax is on the ballot again. A lot of big things on the ballot right now. Portland voters are being asked to pick four of the five members of the city council out of more than 50 people running. they got to decide whether to vote on the $250 million for homeless services, and they want to be asked if they want to renew the temporary gas tax of $0.10 a gallon. Four years ago, that last one was one of the more contentious items on the ballot. 52% voted in favor. Four years later, the tax is up for renewal. One difference, gas right now is pretty cheap. The ask the city is making is the same as last time, four years of a $0.10 a gallon fuel tax. The money will go to the city's transportation bureau to fund a new slate of street repair and safety improvement projects. Initial projections were that the tax would bring in almost $75 million, but that number might need to be revised if COVID-19 keeps people from driving as much. Recall that the state gas tax goes into the highway trust fund, means that it mostly funds the expansion of highways. So to fund things like city street improvements and safety measures, the city is requesting a local gas tax. Your daily dose of data, 60 new coronavirus cases on Sunday, bringing the state's known total to 3,228. The OHA also reported eight new presumptive cases. Those are folks who have not tested positive but have had coronavirus symptoms and have had close contact with a confirmed case. In Oregon, 127 human beings are known to have died from COVID-19. In Washington, the Department of Health is reporting 16,674 diagnosed cases and 921 related deaths. And nationwide, COVID-19 has killed more than 79,500 Americans confirmed. That means that we will pass the 80,000 mark today. None of your business, Nordstrom, is going to close the Clackamas Town Center store. The announcement came just after saying they were going to close 16 of the 116 department stores across the country amid the pandemic. The company has now said it will not reopen the Clackamas Town Center. The store will be permanently shut down by August. Nordstrom cited market needs, moving towards changing practices like more digital service, curbside pickup, and returns. But one has to think the transition from shopping mall culture is hastening during the pandemic. The coronavirus cases at Astoria Seafood Plant have risen to 26. Twelve more workers at Bornstein Seafoods in Astoria have tested positive, bringing the outbreak to 26. The Clatsop County Public Health Department began testing workers at the seafood processor on May 2nd, after the company informed the county that one worker had tested positive. Bornstein Seafoods has shut down two plants at the Port of Astoria in response to the outbreak and advised workers to stay home. Some 500 Native American casinos have voluntarily closed during the pandemic. This is taking away tribes' primary sources of income. The U.S. government did authorize $8 billion for tribes in a coronavirus relief package in March when most casinos closed. But it's been slow to distribute the money. 
Some of the casinos have reopened or planned to in coming weeks, but there have also been forced layoffs and furloughs among the more than one million people who work for tribes, many of them in casinos. Meanwhile, a billion pounds of Washington potatoes are sitting in piles. Hopefully they can get distributed. Mayor Ted Wheeler is saying the proposed budget can withstand the COVID-19 shortfall. The budget proposal released last week would close almost 90 percent, and I'm quoting, of the $75 million gap caused by the pandemic. The plan draws from city reserves, curtails some new spending, and implements furloughs and some wage freezes. A few other budget highlights. We'll go over this stuff more going forward. The city will maintain the current level of homeless services, about $6.2 million. Portland Parks plans to open and fund operations for 21 Portland Parks, use $4 million of the $5 million federal stimulus package to provide three months of rent for 1,300 households and about $500,000 to groups that don't have access to the government stimulus checks and aren't eligible for unemployment, such as Equity Corps, Oregon Work Relief Fund, and Street Roots. That money will go fast. Multnomah County's budget includes 2% department cuts to cover the deficit. The $1.98 billion budget has been revised four times. The deficit has grown by $37.5 million in the two months. Chair Deborah Crafori said the core goal of the executive budget remains intact to ensure health, safety, and resilience of our community members. Crafori noted the unrivaled demand for new services. The county has increased its number of nurses and epidemiologists and expects to hire dozens more contract tracers. She also said, though, the county is expecting to fall short of the $75 million anticipated to meet the contact tracing threshold needed for reopening. Remember from last week, being able to do contact tracing is one of those elements required to move from phase one to phase two, eventually maybe to phase three. The Board of County Commissioners will vote to approve a final budget June 11th. And a note to friends of the local, we'll be talking about the city and county budgets, I suspect, a bunch of times. There might be a few times we're talking about northward moves because of federal support, but mostly I suspect it'll be adjustments moving southward. Oregon is ranking first in the nation for homeless youth, not the number one we're looking for. The state also ranks 10th in the percentage of foster care placements, 12th in the ratio of disadvantaged or, and I'm quoting, underprivileged children, as compared to Washington, which ranks 26th, and California, which was 22nd. The report is titled 2018's States with the Most Underprivileged Children. Compare the 50 states and D.C. across 24 child welfare metrics. Metrics included the percentage of children living in poverty, the rate of food insecurity, and the state's share of children who have been reported abused, along with some other factors. And some happiness. More state parks are beginning to open. The agency has reopened a number of sites in central and eastern Oregon. Also, some of the Lamette Valley in southern Oregon reopened earlier this week. The park system remains closed to camping through at least May 25th. You can check out the Oregon State Parks website for a full list of open sites. Seattle is going to permanently close 20 miles of streets to traffic so residents can exercise and bike on them. Seattle residents will have more space to exercise and bike on. The Stay Healthy Streets initiative started in April to temporarily provide more space for residents to get out of the house and exercise. And Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin said on Thursday the closures will be permanent. People are encouraged to skate, walk, jog, bike, and roll down the closed streets. The city also announced it will accelerate construction of bike infrastructure. I sort of have this hunch that Seattle closing down streets permanently is a little bit like Nordstrom's closing a store, something that some of the advocates have wanted to do for a while, and the pandemic is either forcing or giving the excuse to do it. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. 
First up, as Amazon employees ship out a surge in orders amid the pandemic, the company has launched new health protections and monitoring efforts, from thermal body temperature scans to COVID-19 diagnostic testing. XJ reporter Kate Kay interviewed two workers at the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Troutdale about their experiences. It seems like every safety measure is just to keep us working, just to keep the machine working. Those were the words of one of two workers in a Portland area Amazon facility who spoke to X-Ray on condition of anonymity about their experiences at the facility as the company implements new measures in response to COVID-19. One of those workers has been involved in a worker-led unionization effort at PDX9. That's what insiders call the packing and shipping plant in Troutdale. Both workers interviewed by X-Ray are among the many who have been working overtime as the company fulfills a surge of orders from people staying at home and buying more stuff than ever from the e-commerce giant. But as the company hires more people and cranks out order after order, it's also launched several health protection and monitoring efforts. From thermal body temperature scans to COVID-19 diagnostic testing, workers in the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Troutdale are among those at the front lines of some of Amazon's newest pandemic response efforts. Whether they're guinea pigs for stepped-up worker health surveillance or recipients of an employer's commitment to duty of care for its employees depends on how you look at it. The Amazon workers said they have mixed feelings about their safety when it comes to warding off infection from novel coronavirus. One said the PDX-9 facility is, quote, about as safe as it can be amid a pandemic, but complained of a, quote, maddening array of new or fluctuating rules and procedures, which are, quote, just in added stress. The other worker complained that, quote, Amazon has implemented some safety measures to reduce risk, but I don't believe that any procedure could make me completely safe from infection. First, the basics. Despite claims from Amazon workers elsewhere who say they don't have enough masks, the employees X-Ray spoke with said they can get new masks each day they come to work. And as for social distancing, staggered shifts and break times are helping people reduce contact, some. But the addition of new workers is noticeable. The number of new hires in PDX9 is not known, but an Amazon spokesperson told X-Ray the company has added 1,200 new employees throughout Oregon since mid-March. Another new addition to Amazon's pandemic protection regime, skin temperature screening infrared cameras. Because elevated temperature is a symptom of COVID-19, the idea here is to monitor worker infection risk by measuring their body temperature. When Amazon employees enter PDX9 through turnstiles, they scan their Amazon IDs and pass by one of a few temperature scanning cameras mounted on tripods. These thermal cameras actually measure the temperature of the tear duct. It turns out our tear ducts are the warmest spots on the human face. According to one of the employees X-Ray spoke with, the thermal cameras used at Amazon's PDX9 are made by ICI a Texas company. Gary Strahan, CEO of ICI, said he would not confirm or deny whether the company has sold its cameras to Amazon, but he did describe a bit about how the technology works. Sensors in the infrared cameras detect radiant energy, which is converted into a signal. Here's Strahan. So like a normal thermometer you buy at CVS or Walgreens, right? 
it, it, it's a single point sensor, right? And you hold it close to your head, okay? So the advantage of an infrared camera is you can be at a distance away from something and at a distance measure temperature very accurately. The Amazon spokesperson told X-Ray the thermal screening system does not display, gather, or store personally identifiable information. So what's the latest addition to Amazon's COVID-19 health monitoring at PDX9 in Troutdale? Nose swab tests. Those are part of what the Amazon spokesperson called a first small-scale pilot. She would not provide more detail on the tests or how the company chooses who is tested. For X-Ray.fm, I'm Kate K. Dr. Andy Saltz, candidate for House District 33, talks with Jefferson Smith about the upcoming state budget, high school graduation rates, and getting sent to the principal's office for fighting against Measure 5 when he was in second grade. House District 33 spans southwest Portland, part of Washington County. Mitch Greenlick represented that district for nearly two decades. Dr. Andy Saltz is running for the position. Grew up in the Cedar Mills area, graduated Sunset High School, go Apollos, assistant professor and program director of the Ph.D. program in education and learning at Pacific University. Also a PCP, a precinct committee person with the Washington County Democrats. Welcome, Dr. Saltz. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. Well, thanks a million. Who are you and why are you running? Uh, well, you did a nice job of introing me. My name is Andy Saltz. I am a, a career educator a father of two toddlers, and um, I'm running for House District 33, Northwest Portland, um, into unincorporated Washington County. Actually, I'm a longtime resident of unincorporated Washington County. Uh, my wife and I started dating when we were 16 years old at Sunset High School, and uh, we are raising our kids in the neighborhood we grew up in. And one of the things I've, I've always believed is you can measure a community um, by by if people want to move back there and raise their families and so jenny and i are doing that i'm running for the legislature to build the future that our children deserve that when i think about the next generation i hear a lot of concerns about uh, housing affordability about traffic out here because we've had such large population increases uh, and about the quality of our schools and and those are things that in my childhood i i had i have great memories of uh, the beaverton public schools for example um, but unfortunately, our state has not invested in the next generation. And so I, I really worry that our children will not have kind of the same positive experience growing up that Jenny and I had here. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of education policy. I study uh, how to improve statewide school systems. Um, I also study the intersection between education, healthcare, and economic policy and bring a belief that all policy is connected. So I'm, I'm running and, and I'm, I'm really excited about trying to build that future. Obviously, COVID has changed the landscape quite a bit. And so uh, right now I'm leaning really heavily on my budget experience. Um, I worked at the Senate Fiscal Agency when I lived in Michigan for a few years. Um, I also was on a school board during the Great Recession in the state of Michigan. And, and you may have heard that the recession hit Michigan uh, pretty hard. And so um, have done a lot of that budget work, teach quantitative methods in our PhD program. And um, I think the 2021 session is really going to be defined by uh, working through through tough uh, budget budget situations. Well, let's start with the budget then. How would you try to project yourself forward? And of course, when you'd be entering, if you win, you'd be entering as a freshman in the legislature. So you're not going to be, you know, co-chair ways and means at that point. But what would, nonetheless would you be advocating 
to do to balance, were Constitution required to balance the budget in Oregon, what would you be suggesting to balance the budget, which almost certainly come May is going to see a pretty tricky revenue forecast? Yeah, I, it's, it's going to be challenging. And I think that the priority has to be on basic needs. Um, you know, I, I think the numbers now have surpassed 330,000 folks applying for unemployment in our state. I know that child hunger and houselessness are huge issues in our state. And so I think that putting the priority on meeting those basic needs is going to be the most important thing. Um, I, I think what we did when I was on the school board is really look at some administrative costs, really look at some consolidation of, of bureaus or of departments um, as a way of, of really trying to get there. And, and lastly, I do think um, thinking about how to get capital in individuals' hands and small businesses um, as soon as possible. And so um, I, I fully expect there to be another federal stimulus. Um, I really hope that our representatives can, you know, really advocate for some of that money to be used as backfill for both state and local governments. Um, I saw that as really important during the Great Recession. And, and let's pause there for um, a second, because right now, right now, Mitch McConnell has said he'd prefer states to go bankrupt. And that they don't want they don't want any federal money going to backfill anything. They certainly don't want any federal money going to pay for uh, for retirement commitments that state governments have. The uh, so feel free to you know sort of say, oh, but maybe he'll get maybe he'll blank maybe something will change about that. Maybe Pelosi will win that negotiation. That's one possible view. Another view is that Oregon kind of has to go it alone and figure it out. And most of our uh, expenses are personnel related. How do you right. deal with that? What do you do? You cut personnel? Do you try to do furlough days? Do you try to renegotiate contracts? What do you do? Well, I'm a huge process person, and so I think we have to have everyone at the table. Labor needs to be there, uh, business needs to be there, and um, I'm really proud that if you look at my endorsements, I have I'm the only candidate in this race to have um, a number of labor endorsements as well as a chamber of commerce, uh, the Beaverton Chamber of Commerce, and so I, I really think throughout this campaign, I've worked to get a broad coalition behind me. Um, so, so I think that process is really important. I, we are going to have a lot of really challenging decisions. And, and like you said, I don't think we can count on the federal government. I also think, you know, people like to, to talk about the importance of first responders and, and individuals doing the really important, dangerous work and then not support them uh, when the budget comes up. And that's, that's not okay. And so I, I do think there's more work to be done there. Um, on the next federal stimulus, which I do think will happen eventually. Well, I want to I want to uh, push a little bit though. What, it, so I hear the process point, right? And that to some degree is fair. But what are you hearing the constituents want? What are you hearing the differences between what the business folks want and what labor unions want? And may, again, most specifically, like what would you do? Where would you even start to cut? Yeah. So I think with COVID, people. I, I guess I think about COVID in three phases the stay-at-home order, which we're now in, and I think in the next month or two, we're going to start to reopen some stuff, hopefully, if we continue on the same trajectory, um, and then focus more on recovery, maybe six to 12 months from now, once people are more comfortable with moving beyond social distancing. Um, I, I think both businesses and labor are concerned about capital in people's hands. Like, people can't make pay, small businesses can't make payroll, individuals can't make their rent payments, and so I think speeding up processes as, as quickly as possible, uh, redeploying folks into things like the unemployment office um, is gonna be really, really important. In this next reopen phase, and, and I'm trying to answer your question, 
in the context of I'm not going to take office until January of 2021, right? So we can talk about the COVID now. Um, my hope is that we'll be in a different place then. Um, in the reopen phase in the next you know couple months, we have to have more testing. And, and so I think the availability of testing and the, the rapid communication about if a breakout happens in a certain community, what what do we need to do? Do we need to go back to a stay at home um, is going to be really important. And I, I don't really understand why testing has been such a challenge. Um, my wife actually went through testing about a month ago and it took eight days to get results. And so as you can imagine, that was pretty challenging for my family. Schools. What should you study school policy? What would be your first yeah, maybe first three priorities, not only in terms of making sure schools are okay, but using this opportunity to consider what needs to change, either change in the near term or change in the long term. Where are your priorities? Sure. Our accountability system is broken. We test students in the spring. Those results don't come back till the fall. The students by that time have different teachers. So they're not able to use those data to actually help improve instruction. And I just don't understand in 2020 how we don't have testing that can be quicker than that. Um, and more formative rather than summative assessment. That is helping educators actually learn from those data and incorporate them. So one of the things I would like to do is change our accountability system. I think Student Success Act did that in some helpful ways. I think there's still some work to do. Um, second, I think we really need to think about our uh, length of school year. We have the, the shortest school year in the country, actually. Um, and what that does is it really exacerbates inequality. And so I, we, I think we have to raise that bar. I, I don't think anybody wants to send their kids the fewest school days. As, as a father of two toddlers, I can tell you that um, not just on the learning side, but also just on the childcare side, it puts a lot of pressure on families, particularly working families. Um, and I think the last thing that I'm really proud of Pacific University for doing is placing an emphasis on diversifying our teacher force. Um, we have an increasingly racially diverse student population, but our teaching force is still predominantly white. And one thing we're trying to do is really identify students of color in high school, talk to them about college opportunities and pathways into teaching, so then they can return to their communities and teach within their communities. And there's a lot of research out there that says students of color have a lot better outcomes when they have teachers of color, both academic outcomes and non-academic outcomes. So things like employment, things like graduation, things like um, college attendance, all of that, um, as well as kind of your standard standardized test scores. Um, so I, those are three areas that I would look at. Andy, how come Oregon has low graduation rates? Excellent question. Um, the students that are graduating in the next month um, entered kindergarten in 2007. So if you think about it, they've had 12 years, I mean, starting really the, with the Great Recession, where we have divested in education. And um, funny story, um, you probably remember Measure 5. Um, early 90s was um, shifted school funding pretty dramatically, put a, put a limit on property taxes. So I was a student at Ridgewood Elementary School at the time, and this was before vote by mail. And um, I actually got sent to the principal's office because I was telling voters to vote no on measure five, but I was too close to the polling location. If you remember, you had to be like 150, 200 feet from the polling location. And so I, I think those reforms 
matter. Um, they have absolutely driven up class size. They have um, led to a really shortened school year. And I believe in our education system, kids need to be in schools if they're going to learn. So I think that's one reason. We also have one of the highest uh, child houselessness rates, child hunger rates. Uh, we have not invested in our most vulnerable kids, and it really breaks my heart. Let me switch gears a little bit. Let's take a hypothetical that's related to a very non-hypothetical. Right now we're seeing significant problems with the Oregon Employment Department. Okay, people having a real hard time getting their checks. The resets on Sunday have very often made people have to tell people they have to reapply entirely. Uh, the Employment Department, of course, is dealing with a cascade of applications that they've never anticipated. Uh, now imagine you're faced with a choice. One choice is, and it's sort of a long question, forgive me. One choice is staff up at the Employment Department. Choice two is revamp the computer system at the Employment Department. The hypothetical is, well, maybe should I, instead of hypothetical, I'll just have it as an example. Similar question with the tax department, Oregon Revenue Department, which was, well, should we get more tax collectors, people who call people up and say, hey, you're behind, you want to catch up, because that actually yields more revenue and is more workers and is more jobs and is more labor union members, or what a lot of people within the system were advocating for, which is a better computer system, which would make all that stuff easier, make it faster for people to file their, file their taxes, where would you prioritize new computer system or new workers well i think in the short term we're in a crisis now and so i would absolutely i mean if you would ask me this question six months ago i would have said computer system easy like we we need to build infrastructure to support our systems we received 86 million dollars in 2009 to build a new computer system for our employment division the estimates are we will have that by 2025 i'm not making this up and so, so I guess my frustration is that should have been done. There were plans to have that, and, and we're using DOS for this. Like, I, I worry that at times our state government has not been held accountable for things like our foster care system or um, this computer updates. Like, this is, this is stuff that we have to be sharp on, or in times of crisis, things will be worse than they have to be. So I really feel for the workers out there that are trying to get their unemployment. I know that folks are really frustrated. We're doing a lot of phone banking. I'm talking to a lot of constituents, and people are really upset because they've been told that they could apply for these benefits. They've either not been able to get through or the story has changed. And I think we really, really, the communication piece is really critical um, when people are experiencing this much stress and anxiety. Talking to Andy Saltz, candidate for House District 33, Southwest Portland, et cetera. Andy. What's at stake in this race? What makes you better than the other candidates? Well, I think a lot is at stake. I think we've seen during this pandemic quality leadership and leadership that has failed. And our, you know, our president has continually made ridiculous statements that are harmful um, to the degree that some networks aren't showing him anymore, right? And so. I think leadership really matters and we need individuals who know the community really well and who have experience. There are a couple of things that help that have me stand out in this race. First, my wife and I grew up here. I know House District 33 really, really well. Actually, when I was a senior at Sunset, I got a knock on my door and I opened it and it was Mitch Greenlick and he was running uh, for the first time in the year 2000 and it was the first election I could vote in. And so 
I've seen how this district's changed. The Pearl District looked really different 20 years ago, as did Bethany, as did Cedar Mill. Um, the second thing that makes me stand out is I've been an elected official before, and we need someone on day one who can handle this budget stuff and who knows what public service is about. When I ran, I made the conscious decision that my toddlers had to see examples of public leaders with humility, with the ability to listen, and with the ability to use science and data to drive decisions. And that is so, so critical now. Uh, being on the school board during the Great Recession really taught me about how to bring folks to the table and make difficult decisions. This, this is not about me, this is about how we can bring our community together. Uh, the last thing I'll just mention, I, I do have um, a really broad coalition of folks around me. The state senator from this district, Elizabeth Steiner Hayward, has mentored me through this process and knows this district really well. And um, you mentioned a co-chair of Ways and Means. She's actually one of the co-chairs of Ways and Means. And I, I think her mentorship and guidance will really help me um, be really successful in that first term uh, in the legislature. Andy Saltz, the website is andyfororegon.org. Andy, thank you so much for spending the time this morning. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks to Kate and Andy for joining the local, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. We got a new Facebook page. You can like and share it. If you have story ideas, you can send us an email at the local at xray.fm, and please do rate and review the podcast. Share it with some friends. Let's get those five stars up. We can be together while we're apart. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home. Stay connected, and thank you, democracy. X-Ray.